Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Well, many of you can recite the great battles of World War I and II, and even the Civil War. The more recent battles that have been fought in the Middle East against ISIS have already been forgotten. Certainly the Battle of Mosul was one of them. Beyond that, there's the relevance to events that are taking place on this very day. The battle for Mosul, which helped take down ISIS in 2017, had as a major component the forces of the autonomous region of Kurdistan. 40,000 Kurds that were part of the joint military effort in a battle every bit as important and as bloody as those of World War II. My guest, James Varini, was embedded with the Iraqi Counterterrorism Service during the battle and tells the remarkable story in his new book, They Will Have to Die Now. James Varini is a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine and National Geographic. He's written for the New Yorker, Foreign Policy, and many other publications, and received the National Magazine Award and George Polk Award. It is my pleasure to welcome James Varini here to talk about They Will Have to Die Now, Mosul and the Fall of the Caliphate. James, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be with you. It's good to have you here. How did you come to cover the Battle of Mosul in the first place? Well, um, in the summer of 2016, I went on assignment for National Geographic to Iraq. Um, the idea then was to write about uh, life in the Islamic State. By, by that point, by the middle of 2016, the Islamic State was in retreat. It was on its heels and quickly retreating back towards northwestern Iraq uh, and Mosul. Um, and for the first time, journalists could go into uh, parts of Iraq that had been held by the caliphate, Fallujah, Ramadi, and Tikrit, and talk to Iraqis about what it had been like to live under the caliphate. So I went to do that story for National Geographic, and immediately upon arriving, um, it was apparent that the battle for Mosul was about to begin, that it would begin uh, within a matter of, of months or even weeks. Um, and that was important because everyone knew, the Iraqis, the jihadis, the Kurds, the entire region, the entire world knew that um, the battle for Mosul would be the culminating climactic battle of this war against ISIS, as, at least as it was playing out in Iraq. And, and, and in many ways, the culminating battle of what used to be known as the war on terror. Um, for nearly 20 years, uh, the United States and its allies, but particularly the U.S., had been had been wanting to face the jihadis straight up um, in a set-piece battle. And Mosul was going to be that, everyone knew. Um, so it was eagerly anticipated, but also, of course, dreaded, because everyone knew as well that the jihadis, the Islamic State, would hold on to Mosul with everything they had, and that the city would, uh, as the old saying went about way, the city would have to be destroyed in order to be saved. It was also other battles that were taking place around the same time, battle in, in Libya and the battle, the, the whole campaign that was taking place in Raqqa around the same time. Uh, the final assault of Raqqa did not happen until after Mosul. Um, Mosul was, uh, was a, a vastly larger battle. Mosul, the city, was five or six times the size of Raqqa. Raqqa being, of course, the Islamic State's proclaimed capital. Uh, Raqqa was their capital, but Mosul was the crown jewel uh, of the caliphate and their most prized possession. When the Islamic State had taken Mosul, it had changed the nature of warfare just as surely as 9-11 had. So 
Mosul absor absorbed uh, during its duration all of the attention and all of the effort um, of the Iraqi forces, of course, but also the American-led uh, international coalition. There were operations going on in Syria, but nothing to rival the size of Mosul. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the forces that were gathered in this battle and, and, and kind of what the battle plan was initially. So the forces were myriad. Um, there was, as you pointed out, uh, the Kurdish forces, the Kurdish Peshmerga, um, who number in the tens of thousands. No one's quite sure. Uh, it's a um, it's more of a state of mind than an army, as mm -hmm. one Kurd put it to me, the Peshmerga. Their, their role was to push ISIS out of the Tigris River Valley, the Nineveh Plain, to the, to the east of Mosul, so that the battle for the city itself could begin. Um, they comprised the, the, the early parts of the battle. The first few weeks were, were mostly uh, Kurdish action. Um, going into the city itself initially were the Iraqi Counterterrorism uh, counter Service, or Iraqi Special Operations Forces as they're known, the CTS, along with regular army divisions, the 9th Division, the 16th Division, and a few others, um, and the Iraqi Federal Police. Then you had the international coalition led by the U.S., which included France and Britain and Australia and Canada and other countries. You had, um, you had supporters and special operations units and commandos from northern European countries, from France. Um, you, there, were, uh, there were Turkish troops um, uh, around. There were probably Iranian troops around, um, although they weren't very conspicuous. There were the Iran-backed and Hezbollah-backed um, Shia militias, Iraqi Shia militias, who were massed outside of the city as well. They were not allowed to fight in Mosul, um, but they were massed outside of it. Um, and then any number of um, police units, federal police units, in total, the estimate um, of, of, of total forces either going into Mosul or massed outside of it was about 100,000. That was the number that was, that was offered by the Iraqi high command. Whether that's true, I'm not sure, but there were certainly a lot of, a lot of uh, people. And how was all of this coordinated? Well, um, I, I, it, for most of the war against ISIS, not very well. Um, the Iraqi military was in disarray after the rise of ISIS. ISIS the rise of ISIS um, coincided with the collapse of the Iraqi military in many ways. Um, when, when ISIS rolled into Ramadi and then Fallujah and Tikrit and made its way north, taking, uh, taking most of the northwest of Iraq, um, the Iraqi military essentially collapsed uh, ahead of it. In many places, not a shot was fired. The ISIS just rolled in. So the Iraqi military had to be sort of rebuilt uh, on the fly during this war against ISIS. And for a few years, the coordination was, was not very good at all. Um, Iraq, for the most part, was not allowing foreign fighters to come in uh, to help with the fight. That changed uh, during the battle for Tikrit when they allowed uh, the Iranian Al-Quds force to come in and help take back Tikrit. Um, so for a few years, the war was in kind of a disarray. 
um, the Iraqi forces were proving for the most part unequal to the fight, with the exception of the counterterrorism services. And it took a while for uh, the American-led international coalition to uh, get the air war going. Um, but by the time of the Battle of Mosul, which began in October of 2016, coordination had improved a great deal, and the American-led coalition and the Iraqi troops were working in lockstep. The uh, Iraqi counterterrorism services had, had um, really improved their uh, mettle, or shown their mettle, and improved their skills in Ramadi and then in Fallujah, which they took in just over a month. So um, by the time of the battle for Mosul, it was uh, a fairly well-coordinated uh, offensive, um, and the Iraqi military made sure that the outside, uh, the paramilitary forces and foreign forces, such as the Shia militias, um, stayed outside of the city during the course of the battle. Um, so the battle itself, um, the battle for Mosul, which would last uh, over nine months, was... Um, uh, a fairly predictable proceeding. Um, you know, it was a house-by-house, block-by-block, neighborhood-by-neighborhood, set-piece battle. Everyone knew from the start what the plan was. This plan was city. It was simply to take the city back block-by-block, and that's what the Iraqis and the coalition eventually did. Was there a sense early on how long this battle would take? There were different senses. Um, when I spoke to Iraqi commanders before the, the battle began, they would they would uh, their their estimates ranged from a few months to a few years. The hopeful people pointed out that Fallujah had just been taken in a month, and that um, and that the Iraqi military had the wind at its back, and that it could take back Mosul, which is many times the size of uh, Fallujah, that it could take it back in a matter of months. Other people were more realistic, and they pointed out that uh, the jihadis had, had been dug into Mosul for years and years, even before ISIS was um, was a thing, and that it would take a very long time to root them out entirely. Um, the common estimate thrown around uh, around the Iraqi high command was three to six months. I think that the estimates in the Pentagon um, and in and in France and in London were probably more realistic. Um, I'm not sure uh, anyone anticipated just how bitter the battle would become and how much of Mosul would have to be destroyed in order to kick ISIS out. Talk a little bit about that. When did it become clear that the battle would be so fierce, that it would be so intense, and that it would do so much damage? Well, it became clear um, immediately. Um, as soon as uh, Iraqi units, as soon as the special forces units began breaching the east side of the city, once the Kurds had been were done with their portion of the battle and had extended the cordon around uh, Mosul, once the Iraqi special forces started breaching neighborhoods in the east, it became it became clear that it would be a very very uh, bitter battle, and you could see the evidence of this immediately. Um, standing there, watching the fighting of a morning in mid-October or, or early November of 2016, the airstrikes uh, were coming in constantly. The artillery was coming in constantly. Uh, there were constant firefights. Um, for uh, on the jihadis' part, um, there were not nearly as many jihadi fighters as there were Iraqi fighters, of course. 
but they had certain advantages. Uh, one was that they held the city. Another was that they had developed a, a special type of, of bomb, uh, a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device, as it's known, or a V-bid. Um, and they had perfected the manufacturing and the p deployment of these V-bids, and they had hundreds of them stashed around Mosul uh, in garages and undercover in various places. And um, these, these were these V-bids were their answers to the airstrikes. They were their sort of air force after a fashion. They were kamikaze cars. Um, and the the jihadis used a combination of drones and V-bids. So what they would do was they would monitor the Iraqi troops' movements with their fleet of drones, many of them commercial drones, others of which they built themselves. Um, they would monitor the movement of the Iraqi columns and convoys um, into the city, and uh, they would then target them uh, using, the, f using the, the camera feed from the drone. They would know where to target the troops with these, with these V-bits, and it made for devastating attacks that really slowed the operation down a lot. And um, by the end of the battle, the Iraqi, the casualty rate among the Iraqi troops, uh, I think was about 40%, a lot of it owing to these uh, vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices. Um, that was, so, so the bitterness of the battle became apparent immediately on the east side. However, the east side, um, survived the battle relatively intact. With the exception of Mosul University, the east side made it out okay. Um, you could see that it would recover and be rebuilt. Once the fighting got into the west side of the city, um, it, was a, it was a very different matter. The west side of the city is much more densely populated. It was, uh, it was the epicenter of ISIS within Mosul. It's where they'd set up their, their ministry buildings and their central government in the city. And it, um, the West Side was also built up since the Middle Ages so that much of it was too dense to move Humvees and vehicles mm -hmm. through. The Iraqi soldiers had to proceed through the West Side by foot. Um, this meant that the, the fighting became um, even more bitter. Also on the West Side, um, the Iraqis started using their own air power, mostly in the form of helicopters, and the airstrikes became in many places indiscriminate. So if you look at photographs of Mosul uh, after the battle, if you look at photographs of West Mosul, you'll see, a, you'll see a city that looks as though it's been wiped from the face of the earth by a vengeful deity. It looks as though, it looks as though some sort of god just wiped his hand across the west side of Mosul. Was there ever any question about the outcome? Certainly it, it took longer than some people anticipated, but was there ever a question about how it would turn out? I don't think so. I, I think there was probably, uh, people were very apprehensive, um, and they, everyone knew that there would be a great deal of destruction and death. Perhaps no one knew just how much, but there may have been um, a question in the minds of certain of the members of ISIS. Um, I've never had the opportunity, I'm sad to say, to, to interview any higher-ups within ISIS. I've only spoken to lower-down jihadis. But um, I have to imagine that in the, in the, in the mind, that there is a great deal of variety of, of motivation in the minds of, of the ISIS higher-ups. And I'm sure that some of them believe that the Islamic State could turn itself into 
um, a legitimate political party or political movement uh, in the way that Hezbollah had, say, or Hamas had. Um, I think there were probably more pragmatically minded higher-ups in ISIS who believed that if the organization just held on long enough um, and the Iraqi forces and international coalition got tired enough that they could turn themselves into some sort of permanent part of the of the regional political landscape that would have been those would those would have been ambitions held earlier on in the war by by the time uh, the fighting reached Mosul it's it was clear that that was not going to happen that any pragmatically minded people in ISIS um, had been sidelined or or had been um, their their ambitions would would be dismissed entirely by the time the fighting reached Mosul it was clear that this city had to be taken back from the jihadis by hook or by crook what surprised you about the intensity of the battle um, well uh, w- uh, initially, what was so surprising was, was, as you say, just the intensity of the battle. Um, according to the Pentagon, this was the most significant urban combat since World War II. I've not been around long enough and not been covering conflict long enough to, to say whether I believe that's true. Um, but certainly for uh, the scale of the destruction, the number of combatants, the tonnage of munitions used... Um, I, I, I have to believe that that's accurate. Uh, it, it seems as though it was bigger than, say, the Battle for Huey or the, or the Battle of Sarajevo. Um, for me personally, uh, just the scale of it was, was shocking. I, I had covered conflicts um, in Africa and other parts of the world, but nothing on this scale. And I think, I think the scale of it was even shocking um, for the military planners uh, in the Pentagon and elsewhere, you know, f- since 9/11, the assumption had always been um, in the in the U.S. Department of Defense and in other parts of the world that that war had entered an era of of asymmetry. That what we would be seeing for the foreseeable future would be um, conflict would come in the form of ambushes and skirmishes and insurgencies and and asymmetrical warfare, as it's known, and not the set-piece battles of the 20th and 19th century. Um, But ironically, that's what ISIS ushered in. Um, ISIS was a remarkably progressive, if we want to use that word, or futuristic insurgency that managed to um, managed to do something that, that jihadi insurgencies had been talking about for a long time, but for the most part had never achieved, which was the taking of a massive swath of territory, the creating of, a, a, of an Islamic state and a caliphate. And though they were able to achieve this and move jihadism well into the future, precisely by doing this, they were also moving warfare back into the 20th century. Once an insurgency takes territory, it, most, it must hold that territory. Um, and if it's going to hold that territory, then it has to engage in giant set-piece battles along the lines of Mosul. Um, and so, uh, as I said before, the, the jihadis were inadvertently, or I guess unavoidably, handing the Americans um, what we had wanted for a good 20 years, which was the chance to face a jihadi organization in an urban set-piece battle 
um, in which in which warfare would be returned to the days of economy. Warfare would be decided by sheer numbers of men, by amount of material, by tonnage of munitions, and so forth. Um, so it was so th just the fact of this battle happening in 2016 and 2017 was a was a very surprising development. Talk a little bit about the casualty count on, on both sides. So um, I will never know. Uh, we'll never know the real casualty count for a number of reasons. Um, um, on the on the side of the Iraqi soldiers, um, I think the estimate um, is around 1,200 Iraqi soldiers died in the Battle of Mosul, um, and many many thousands more died in the longer fight against ISIS uh, in Iraq. I think. By the time the fighting had reached Mosul, it was as high as 20,000 Iraqi soldiers had been killed over the previous two and a half years or so. Um, the problem is, is that um, the Iraqi military does not uh, like or even allow outside reporting on its casualties. Um, it doesn't like to discuss its casualties. It doesn't like to have its casualties reported on. So we have to trust the numbers of the Iraqi military. Um, which I frankly don't entirely trust. Um, when it comes to deaths of jihadis, well, there again, you know, we can only speculate. Uh, no one knew exactly how many jihadis were occupying Mosul when the troops went in in the fall of 2016. Estimates ranged from a few thousand to 10,000, but certainly many thousands of jihadis or would-be jihadis or wannabe jihadis were killed in the fighting. Um, I mean, the worst toll, of course, um, and probably the least calculable toll, it was the toll to civilians. Thousands of, and thousands of Iraqi civilians died during the fighting against ISIS between 2014 and 2018. Just how many thousands, we'll never know. Um, and the, the really sad thing, of course, is that um, not all of them were killed by jihadis. Many were killed by uh, by airstrikes. Many were killed by um, Iraqi soldiers. I'm sad to say there was a policy of summary execution, at least in Mosul, whereby if a commander believed a, a Muslawi was a jihadi, they could very easily be shot on the spot without without the benefit of much evidence. Um, the air war took even more of a toll on civilians in Mosul and other parts of Iraq. According to a New York Times Magazine report uh, that was published after the battle, the um, civilian casualties in, in Nineveh province, of which Mosul is the capital, civilian casualties were, I think, in the order of 60 times the number that the Pentagon claimed uh, of civilians killed uh, by airstrikes and artillery. So many, many, many thousands of civilians uh, were killed in the fighting. We'll never know how many. Talk a little bit about your personal experience being embedded and, and what that experience was like for you and for how long? Um, well, so uh, it, the, the experience varied a great deal. Uh, being embedded with the Kurdish forces was very different uh, from being embedded with the Iraqi special forces and the Iraqi military. Um, on the whole, um, I have to say that being embedded is just... Um, frankly, great fun. Um, you get to spend a lot of time 
with soldiers and as well and civilians as well, um, because it must be remembered that Mos the battle for Mosul took place while many many Moslawis were still living there. So, uh, as a journalist, I got to uh, interview not just soldiers but civilians uh, uh, as much as I wanted. They were everywhere. And I also, more importantly, got to watch the interactions between the soldiers and the civilians, which was endlessly fascinating. And I, and I think makes for um, uh, a different, maybe even a singular reading experience for people who read my book. Um, but embedding with the Kurdish Peshmerga was uh, quite easy. The Kurdish Peshmerga, until recently, at any rate, until the last couple of weeks, like Americans quite a lot, including American journalists. And as an American journalist, you can go to Iraqi Kurdistan and make contact with the um, with the Kurdish generals and simply join in their columns and their convoys. And, and that's what we did when the Kurds uh, invaded the ISIS-held villages outside of Mosul in the first two weeks or so of the battle. Um, I was I was able to just jump into their uh, column and ride along with them as they attack these villages. It was um, as easy as you like. Um, things got a lot more difficult in bedding with the Iraqi military. At first, the Iraqi military was very welcoming. Um, and certainly the soldiers, the, the infantrymen, were endlessly and always welcoming. But soon enough, uh, the Iraqi high command and the Iraqi government got fed up with the foreign coverage of the Battle of Mosul. And they they also got fed up with the behavior of foreign journalists, and I frankly couldn't blame them. There were a lot of freelancers and foreign journalists running amok in Mosul, um, endangering themselves and civilians and the troops. So um, a few months into the battle, the Iraqi High Command decided to basically just expel all of the journalists, foreigners and Iraqis. And then for most of the rest of the battle, I had to essentially sneak into Mosul and uh, join up with commanders who were nice enough to allow me to stay with them. And then I would always eventually get kicked out again uh, when some general or colonel noticed me. And then I'd have to sneak in again and find the nice commanders again. So that proved to be a pretty uh, grueling process. Um, but once I was in Mosul and once I was in the company of the soldiers in the Moslawis, um, it was uh, always fascinating, always fascinating, always very moving, always very touching, often, as you can imagine, often very heartbreaking um, and very, very deeply saddening. Um, it was especially saddening embedding as an American journalist because, of course, um, I was coming from the country that had invaded and occupied Iraq uh, a decade and a half before. Um, and so my, my feelings about this war were necessarily more complex than those of, say, a, a French counterpart or, or a Japanese journalist that would have been in Mosul. Um, I, was, I was embedding with these soldiers um, and among the Moslawi civilians with the knowledge that the war that my country had brought to Iraq had directly given rise to to the Islamic State. There would have been no Islamic State, at least not in this form, without the American era in Iraq. So that added a great deal of, um, of psychological and emotional complexity to my presence, I think both for me and, and for the people I was speaking with. Talk a little bit about the end of, of this battle and how it, how it came to a close and what the state of things was then. Well, um, the end of the battle was uh, a, a drawn-out end. Um, 
even after uh, the Iraqi prime minister proclaimed victory in, in July of 2017, the fighting went on. There were skirmishes and bombings for weeks and perhaps even months afterwards. Um, even after the prime minister declared victory in, in July of 2017, it turned out that there was a uh, a cadre, um, an entire little population of jihadis and their families sort of stuck in this neighborhood uh, on the Tigris River in West Mosul, um, who had not yet been defeated, um, but who were surrounded. Uh, and eventually they were just bombed into submission and death. Um, the, the aftermath uh, of the battle well, you can actually still see it because sadly, uh, most of West Mosul has not been rebu rebuilt. Uh, if you look at footage or images of Mosul, West Mosul today, you will see uh, essentially the end of the battle. You will see an entire portion of the city, um, the historic medieval portion of the city and much of the rest of the West Side. You will see that it is just leveled. That um, that street after street, neighborhood after neighborhood are are rubble. Um, that's how it looked afterwards, and that's still how it looks on much of the west side of Mosul. Um, after the battle, um, um, police and uh, federal police and um, and militia came in to fill in uh, and occupy the city of Mosul. Um, and when I spoke with uh, people whom I portray in the book after the battle, um, what they told me, sadly, was that um, things were no better than they'd been under ISIS. Now, uh, now no one had work. The economy, of course, was terrible. And, where, and, and though that had all been the case under ISIS, ISIS had also, at least in its initial months in Mosul, had kept the peace. But now there was um, growing sectarian resentment again in Mosul. There were militias uh, facing off against one another. There, everyone was anticipating uh, a new rise in, in military abuse of Moslawi citizens. Um, I have not been back in, in over two years, uh, so I can't speak to how it feels on the ground, but I know that many, many Moslawis um, expect life not to get much better. James Verini, his book is They Will Have to Die Now, Mosul and the Fall of the Caliphate. James, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you.